you have your Bibles, if you'd open them to Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3. Last Sunday we studied how that Ezekiel was commissioned to be a prophet. He was a priest by birth, his lineage, but to be a prophet required that he be commissioned. And we saw that the vision which he had, which is the context of his being commissioned, involved not only hearing words, but also seeing and tasting. So three of the five senses are involved. At the end of the vision, we are told that he was brought by the Spirit to the exiles who lived outside Babylon, uh, Tel Aviv. And he sat there for seven days just overwhelmed by what he had seen and heard and what he had tasted. At the end of seven days, the Spirit, or the, the Lord, the Word of the Lord came to him saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. And he tells Ezekiel, because I think it, it could be that Ezekiel was sort of wavering. I mean, he's just overwhelmed by what he has seen and what he has heard. And perhaps he is wavering as to whether or not he should do the work of a prophet. And the Lord tells him that he must warn both the wicked and the righteous. And if he doesn't, he will be held accountable for their blood. This is in chapter 3, verse 18. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out or dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. Today we continue in chapter 3 of Ezekiel. And what we find appears to be additional material to his commission Um, But there's a shift in location. Look, if you would, in chapter 3, verse number 22. The hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Get up and go out to the plain, and there I will speak to you. So I got up and went out to the plain, and the glory of the Lord was standing there, like the glory I had seen by the Kibar River, and I fell face down. Then the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. He spoke to me and said, Go, shut yourself inside your house and you son of man they will tie with ropes you will be bound so that you cannot go out among the people I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be silent and unable to rebuke them though they are a rebellious house but when I speak to you I will open your mouth and you will say to them this is what the sovereign Lord says whoever does not listen or whoever will not listen let Let me start over. Whoever will listen, let him listen. And whoever will refuse, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Again, Ezekiel is faced with the glory of God, and he falls face down, and the Spirit raises him up to his feet. And there are three things that are told to Ezekiel, the son of man, remember? First of all, go shut yourself up in your house. You know, go in the house, lock the door. Secondly, they will tie you with ropes so that you can not go out among the people. And thirdly, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be silent and unable to rebuke them. What we find here are three obstacles to Ezekiel carrying out the commission of being a prophet. The three obstacles, in fact, will make it impossible for him to do what God has called him to do, what God has commissioned him to do. He's supposed to stay in the house shut himself in. And 
the question is how can he warn people if he's stuck in his house? They don't have live stream, they don't have cell phones, he's in the house. How can he in fact warn the wicked and the righteous? Secondly, the people to whom he is supposed to give this warning are going to tie him up with ropes so that he cannot leave the house. And then thirdly, if that weren't bad enough, God is going to make him dumb. He will not be able to speak. Okay, let me get this straight. You want me to be a prophet, but I have to stay in the house. The people I'm supposed to warn are going to tie me up so I can't leave the house. And even if I could leave the house, I will not be able to speak. Doesn't seem to make sense. What's going on here? What is being said? I think there's an important point being made here. And that is while Ezekiel is commissioned to be a prophet, it is the Lord who is in charge. Ezekiel could not say, nor would he, I'm called to be a prophet, I got this. I know what I'm supposed to do as a prophet. God will occasionally give me messages and then I will preach and I got this. And what we find here is, no, that's actually not the case. God is in charge. It is the Lord who calls the shots. Several times later in the book of Ezekiel, we will see there are times when God will enable him to speak. Chapter 29, verse 21. On that day I will make a horn grow for the house of Israel, and I will open your mouth among them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. In chapter 24, at that time your mouth will be open, and you will speak with him and will no longer be silent. In chapter 33, now the evening before the man arrived, that is a man coming to say Jerusalem has fallen, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he opened my mouth before the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was open and I was no longer silent. So there are times when God enables him to speak and there are times when God tells him what to say. In chapter 20, on the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day, some of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord. They sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. So just because he has this commission and this calling, I'm going to be a prophet, doesn't mean that he gets to choose. It is God, in fact, who is in charge. What about the fact that the people are going to tie Ezekiel up so he can't leave the house? Well, the Lord is still in control. Because even when he could leave the house, it was God who would enable him to speak or disable his ability to speak. Now we come to the beginning of his ministry as a prophet. And what we find is not what we expect. We would expect a sermon, a message, Ezekiel saying, this is what the Lord says. And in fact, what we have are four object lessons, if you wish, acted out signs. It may be, in fact, that at this point, Ezekiel can no longer speak. And rather than preaching, God has given him four signs, things he is to do, that are to let the people of Israel know what God is trying to say. Um, Just a side note, words are important. Um, In the beginning was the word. Words are important, okay? As one commentator put it, words make things happen. We may be less sensitive to this because of our culture, which is so visually driven. But in other cultures, um, words were important. 
where people might be illiterate. You know, verbal communication was very important. Memory was very important. We may have lost sight of that. Something that's worth noting, that when a true prophet of the Lord says, this is what the Lord says, and he speaks of what's going to happen, it's not simply a prediction. It's like, you know, next Tuesday, such and such is going to happen. That's not what it is at all. To speak of God's word, this is what the Lord says, is in fact to bring it to pass in human history. That's why I think the exiles tie Ezekiel up and leave him in the house. Because if he can't speak, if he can't say, this is what the Lord says, then it won't happen. So for example, uh, if Ezekiel were to say, God is going to judge you, the judgment would happen. But if you can keep him quiet, then God won't judge because Ezekiel hasn't said the words. But what if it's not about words? What if it's about signs? The four signs. The first one deals with the siege of Jerusalem. If you look at chapter 4, the first three verses. Now, son of man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Now, as to where this takes place, some people say it's outside so people can see what's going on, but we've been told that he's supposed to lock himself in the house. Um, I think, in fact, it is inside. Um, and what the Lord tells him to do is almost like kids playing you know, with toy soldiers or whatever. He's supposed to take a clay tablet, probably uh, a tile of some type, and, and draw Jerusalem on it, perhaps just the outline, you know, the skyline of Jerusalem with its fortifications. He's supposed to set it there, and then he's supposed to prepare things to lay siege to it, battering rams and all these different things. And then he's to put an iron plate between him and this drawing of Jerusalem. What he is doing is enacting the siege that will come to Jerusalem. Now, the fact that it's an iron plate means it's not flexible. There's no give. <laughs> this is going to happen. And who is going to besiege the city of Jerusalem? We're like, well, we know it's, it's the Babylonians. They're the ones who Nebuchadnezzar. No. God says, Ezekiel, it's you. And Ezekiel as a prophet stands in the place of God. It is God who is actually besieging uh, the city of Jerusalem for their wickedness. And God says, this will be a sign. Okay? Nothing said to the people of Israel. Okay? It's just a sign. It may be because I think the exiles were probably a fairly small community and close-knit that people heard what was going on in Ezekiel's house. But in any case, he doesn't say, by the way, Jerusalem's going to be besieged and this. No, he just does what the Lord says. He does this drawing and then like playing war and then putting an iron plate. It is to be a sign. The second action or acted out sign deals with punishment. Look, if you would, at verses 4 through 8. 
Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. After you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and with a bared, with bared arm, prophesy against her. I will tie you up with rope so you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. In the first acted out sign, Ezekiel occupied or had the role of God. His face was set against Jerusalem. Here in the second acted out sign, Ezekiel plays the role of the people. That is, the people of Israel and the people of Judah. When it is said that he will bear the punishment for the sins, this isn't a vicarious thing, that somehow their sins will be forgiven because Ezekiel has carried them. It's purely descriptive. The things that they have done, somehow Ezekiel is bearing. Just as a short reminder, you may remember that Israel had 12 tribes. But after Solomon died, 10 tribes to the north separated. They seceded. They formed their own nation. They called themselves Israel. That left two in the south, Benjamin and Judah. They were called Judah. So you have two separate kingdoms. The northern kingdom, Israel, was taken into exile in 722, which is more than 100 years before that happens to Judah, almost 150 years before. They are conquered by Assyria, the world power at that time. And their people are, we might say that they are taken into exile, but more than that, they're just scattered. They're just scattered throughout that part of the world. Judah would suffer a similar fate, except they would be taken into exile, and then they would be able to return. And so in that sense, they're different. So this is what the Lord tells uh, Ezekiel. And again, I take this as in his house. He's, he's built this thing, this here's Jerusalem, here are the battering rams, here's the iron plate. And then the Lord tells him to lay on his left side for 390 days. That represents the northern kingdom. And then he's supposed to turn over and lay on his right side for 40 days. And he is to bear his arm. That means you're ready for battle. You're not messing around. Bear your arm. This is what's going to happen, the siege against Jerusalem. Did you notice that the Lord says that the Lord would tie him up? Because I don't know about you. I don't know how you sleep, but I can't imagine sleeping on the same side for 390 days. I mean, at some point you're going to turn over. And no, you're not going to be able to do that. Uh, The Lord will tie him so that for 390 days he'll lay on his left side and then for 40 days on his right side. It's a punishment that is coming, that has come for the northern kingdom. Then the third sign is the famine of Jerusalem. Look, if you would, at verses 9 and 10. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times. 
This may be familiar to you. I don't know if you've ever seen this in grocery stores, but you can buy uh, bread that is called Ezekiel 4.9. Does that ring a bell with anyone? Um, it's it, Ironic is not the right word. It reminds me of, if you may remember back in, in the 90s, there was this big uh, thing, we are the world. All these singers got together, we are the world. And I remember that one of the lines said, as God has shown us by turning stones to bread. Like, no, <laughs> that was a temptation that Jesus did not give into. Well, in the same way, when people do, oh, we're going to do Ezekiel 4, 9 bread, that's going to be really healthy. They're missing the point. The point is the people in Jerusalem are going to be so hungry that they're going to put together whatever they can find. I don't, I'm not a baker, but if you're going to make bread and you use wheat and barley, that's okay. But beans and lentils, I mean, that doesn't really go together. But you know what? If you're hungry, you, you'll put everything together. You'll throw it in the pot. That's the point that's being made here. Um, now, there's nothing in the law that says that this is wrong. You know, there's certain things that's in the law that says you can't put certain things together. But this is, this is purely, ex- this is acceptable, okay? But it is not normal. It is the behavior of a starving population. Whatever is available, that's what they use, they will use to make bread. Ezekiel is to do this, to act out the reality of how bad it will be in Jerusalem before it falls. 20 shekels will be the equivalent of eight ounces of bread. That is just barely above starvation rations. And for water, verse number 11, also measure out a sixth of a hint of water and drink it at set times. This is a little over a pint of water. You will not live very long on a pint of water every day and eight ounces of bread every day. But Ezekiel's to do this for 390 days while he's laying on his left side. And for the first time, by the way, we are told that he is to do this. It's to be done in the sight of the people. So at some point, the word's gotten out or will get out that, hey, if you heard about Ezekiel, he's doing some really weird stuff. Let's go see what he's doing. And here they will be able to see. But then there's an an added twist. Verse number 12. Eat the food as you would a barley cake. Bake it in the sight of the people. That's okay because they had communal ovens. People didn't have their own ovens in the house. They had communal ovens. Using human excrement for fuel. Now, we will see in verse number 15, it was not unusual in that culture and in many cultures even today to use uh, cow manure as fuel. Camel manure as fuel. But not human feces. Okay, um, verse 13 the Lord said in this way the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them to use human dung was defiling guess what Israel was going to be defiled among the pagan nations where they will be driven for the first time Ezekiel pushes back so far everything Whatever God tells him to do, he's going to do it. And for the first time, Ezekiel says, no. Look at verse number 14. Then I said, 
Not so, sovereign Lord. I have never defiled myself. From my youth until now, I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. Remember, Ezekiel is of the priest class of the tribe of Levi. Okay? He has kept the dietary laws. He has not defiled himself. He has not broken any of these laws. He has not eaten something he should not eat, something that was found dead, something torn by wild animals or unclean meat. Ezekiel is willing to do everything God has told him, but not this. This is something that defiles. Look at verse number 15. Very well, he said, this is the Lord speaking, I will let you bake your bread over cow manure instead of human excrement. I think the point here is very important and it's very powerful. Ezekiel has been commissioned as a prophet, but he is not a robot. Somehow we might imagine that he channels, you know, whatever, this is what the Lord says, and it just comes through him as though he has no power over that whatsoever. He does not mindlessly obey. And he pushes back and says, I'm not going to do that. And the Lord agrees. says, okay. But I want you to know that I wanted you to use human dung so that people would know how defiled they're going to be living among the heathen nations. I think without this particular incident, we might think of Ezekiel and other prophets merely as zombies. And we might think that's what we should be. If we're good Christians, we, we, we won't just think for ourselves, we'll just let the Spirit take over and, and direct us whatever way we will go. And I think by Ezekiel pushing back, it's something very, very important. The point of this acted out sign, verses 16 and 17. Then he then said to me, Son of man, I will cut off all the, I will cut off the supply of food in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair. For food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. You know, when, when the Babylonians surround Jerusalem and nothing's getting out, nothing's coming in, people will just have to survive on what's there. They will get very thin. They will just, they'll look like scarecrows. They will just be appalled when they see one another in the street. Um, it's because of their sin. That's why God is doing this. Those are the first three acted outside. The fourth one is the longest. It is all of chapter 5. Um, each of these signs has acted out or has portrayed some aspect of the disaster that's going to happen to Jerusalem. It hasn't happened yet, but it is going to. The first sign was there's going to be a siege. So draw a picture of Jerusalem and put all these things. That's the fact. There will be a siege. Secondly, the punishment will be of a long duration. And thirdly, there will be famine. Famine conditions, people will barely be able to stay alive on what they can put together. Now we come to the fourth and last sign here in this first part. It is the fate of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. 
When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair with fire inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind, for I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few strands of hair and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. A fire will spread from there to the whole house of Israel. Ezekiel is to take a sharp sword and use it as a razor to shave his head and to shave his beard. I'm no expert, but this doesn't sound like a wise thing to do. To shave one's head and beard with a sword is not normally the way things are done. You don't go to the barber and say, hey, could you please use a sword to shave my head? Plus, in the Old Testament, to shave one's head was either a sign of mourning or a sign of disgrace. But more than that, it is something that priests were not allowed to do. I find it interesting, Ezekiel doesn't push back here. He pushed back about using human dung. But here, God says, I want you to shave your head and your beard. And Ezekiel goes along with it. He is then to take the hair from his beard and the hair off his head and weigh it. Okay? When Jerusalem fell, he was to take one-third and burn it. And I think it's in this little scenario he has set up in the house he is to in fact take a third of the hair and put it there and burn it right there in this little model thing that he has set up a third of it he is to take a sword and strike it the same sword that he used to cut his hair that he's to chop it up and then a third he is supposed to throw to the wind but he's supposed to take a few strands and keep them we would say in a pocket, but in the fold of his robe. But some of those he's supposed to take out and throw into the fire. So what, is, what is going on here? What is this all about? It is the wickedness of Israel and the coming punishment. Look, if you would, at verses 5 through 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, fathers will eat their children and children will eat their fathers. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will withdraw my favor, and I will not look on you with pity or spare you. Now, verse 12, the acted out sign is explained. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword. Then my anger will cease and my wrath against them will subside and I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath upon them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. 
I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in anger and in wrath with stinging rebuke. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of famine, I will shoot to destroy you. I will bring more and more famine upon you and cut off your supply of food. I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. You may remember that there seem to be three factions among the exiles. Those who felt that, in fact, yes, we're being, we're, we're being punished for what we have done. We accept that, but that's enough, okay? Enough with the punishment. It's, we've suffered enough. You know, our sins and the punishment sort of balance out. There are those, the second faction, who said, no, actually we're suffering because of what our dads did, what our grandfathers did. It's because of our ancestors. That's why we, in fact, are suffering. And then there's a third faction that says, you both are wrong. God is a weak God. The gods of Babylon are stronger, and that's why we're suffering the way that we are. They are all wrong. The worst is yet to come. You will notice in verses 15 and 17 at the end, we read, I, the Lord, have spoken. Israel has been wicked. They have gone against God's laws, which he had given them. And interestingly enough, verse 7, you have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 5, the man who is in an incestuous relationship. And Paul says, listen, pagans don't even do this. And that's what, what's being said here. You're surrounded by pagans and you act worse than they do. And so, you're going to have famine. You're going to have cannibalism. Fathers eating their children and children eating their fathers. And then they will be scattered. They will be scattered. One might well ask after reading chapters 4 and 5, what is going on? What are we to make of this? Several things come to mind here in closing. Even though Ezekiel was commissioned to be a prophet, he was told what to do and what to say. Being a prophet, being commissioned, did not give him the freedom to carry out his position in a way that he thought was best. Yeah, I think this is what a prophet should be like. No. God is the one who commissions him and tells him what he should do. And what he is told is contrary to my expectations, perhaps to your expectations. Ezekiel, you're going to be a prophet. Now go lock yourself in the house. Ezekiel, you're going to be a prophet. People are going to tell you you can't leave the house. Ezekiel, you're going to be a prophet, and I'm going to strike you mute, and you're not going to be able to talk unless I enable you to talk. It's like, wait a minute. Isn't a prophet supposed to say, this is what the Lord says? How can you say that if, in fact, you can't speak? A prophet is to be obedient, and we see this in Ezekiel. But obedience does not mean being a robot. Ezekiel is not a robot. He is allowed to push back against a command. And the Lord says, okay, you don't have to do that. But the point I want to get across is this is how bad it will be for the people of Israel. But I think it's a powerful lesson for us, not just for Ezekiel, but all the prophets, that they are not these, uh, these mindless things that sort of channel 
you know, God speaks through them and they have no idea what's going on. No, Ezekiel is very much engaged. We're not told if Ezekiel did these acted out signs inside his house or outside. Um, some would say, well, Damon, it doesn't make sense if he does it in the house because people can't see it. Um, maybe, but would they even know what he was doing? I mean, if he lays on his side for 390 days and he can't speak, what, what does that mean? Okay. Um, so whether he did it in the house or outside the house, I think is really secondary. The reality is he did exactly what God told him to do. But, but why the acted out signs? Why not a spoken message? One of the things we are told about Israel thus far in chapters 2 and 3, seven times we are told they are a rebellious people. They are obstinate, they are stubborn. And ask yourself, how do you speak to a rebellious people? How do you speak to someone who is stubborn and obstinate? Is it by making a really well-organized, structured argument to persuade them? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not give dogs what is sacred, do not throw your pearls to pigs, you know, casting your pearls before swine. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. If you Google, by the way, casting pearls before swine, you will find it's defined as wasting one's time by offering something that is helpful or valuable to someone who does not appreciate or understand it. You have a rebellious people. So what are you going to, are you going to give them this well-organized, structured, this is what the Lord says? No. You're not going to use words at all at this point. You're going to do this drawing of Jerusalem on a piece of tile, and then you're going to, almost like a little kid playing war, you're going to lay on your side for 300. Yeah. If people are rebellious, they are not open to hearing the truth. We hear this from Jesus, by the way. Regarding parables, this is in Matthew 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the, word, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. We've talked about this numerous times before, but there seems to be a principle in Scripture that the clarity of the message depends on the openness of the listener or listeners. If someone is not open then the message becomes somewhat obscure. You mean like a guy laying on his left side for 390 days? Exactly. You have a rebellious people. Is he going to get up and preach this wonderful sermon? They're going to, oh, you're right, Ezekiel, we have sinned. No, they are hard-hearted. They're hard-hearted. To those that are open, the message is clear. The best example of this is the Philippian jailer. Remember, there's the earthquake and all the prisoners are loose and the jailer comes in because by Roman law, if the prisoners escape, he has to die in their place. And he asks Paul, or Paul says, don't worry, we're all here. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. It's the clearest clearest proclamation of the gospel. 
But if you go to John chapter 6, and again, we've talked about this a number of times, it begins with Jesus feeding 5,000. It's, it's a miraculous sign. Jesus leaves because he knows they want to make him king because he can keep feeding them. They look for him, they look for him, they find him. Okay? And they say, we want another miracle. We want more to eat. And Jesus tells them, I am the bread of life. The people began to grumble because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus responds, I am the bread, the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the people began to argue among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And what you find is you go from this wonderful, miraculous occurrence of feeding 5,000 to Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. Because people, they, they want a miracle. They sort of miss the point of the first one. And then when he says, I'm the bread of life, they're like, that, that can't be right. And then he says, okay, if you eat this, if you eat my flesh, and they're like, okay, really? This guy wants us to cannibalize him? Jesus then tells him, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. And you know what we read after that? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. If you want the message to be clear, then you have to listen. You have to be willing. You can't be hard-hearted. You can't be rebellious, stubborn, and obstinate. That's precisely the kind of people that Ezekiel is sent to. And guess what? He's not to say a word at this point. He's to act out these signs to show the things that are going to happen. The message that God gives him is one of signs, not of words. We live in a time of radical unbelief. And I don't think that the answer for us is to come up with better arguments, a better presentation of the gospel, a better apologetic. Nothing wrong with arguments, apologetic, an explanation of the gospel. But I think Ezekiel has something to teach us here. Because I think in many ways we are throwing pearls before swine. And maybe we should learn from Ezekiel's example and remember the admonition, preach the gospel everywhere and when necessary, use words. That in our lives, we are to be the acted out signs. This is what the love of God looks like. This is what the grace of God looks like not give them a track, not try witnessing to them, but living it out, acting out the truth of the gospel. Our living is to convey the message of God's love and his grace shown in his creation, the beauty of his creation, but supremely in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. We are to be ready to give a reason for the hope. That's what Peter tells us. With gentleness and respect, if people come up and say, 
hey, Damon, what, what's this? You seem to be okay, or what is it that you believe? What is it, what is, what gets you up in the morning? What is your hope? Then by God's grace, we can speak to them because they seem to be open. Paul says that we are to persuade men. There's a place for persuasion, but I'm convinced it begins with actions and then words will follow. And this is what we see in the case of Ezekiel. It's one of those strange parts of the Bible. What, shave my head with the sword? Bake bread using human dung? Lay on my side for 390 days? Be like a little kid playing war? Well, to hard-hearted people, this is the only message that can get through. And actually, it will not. Ezekiel was told that at the beginning. But he doesn't waste words. God doesn't waste words. He shows them this is what's going to happen. Let's pray together. Our Father, so easily we fall into the trap of thinking we know what to do. Give us a commission as a prophet, we're ready to go. And so we're a bit startled when we read about Ezekiel being told that he's supposed to go home and lock the door, that people are going to tie him up, that you're going to strike him mute. He will not be able to speak. How can he do the work of a prophet? And then we're given these four acted out signs. It's like, this doesn't sound like a good sermon to me. Doesn't sound like a good presentation. May we learn from this passage. We who think we can somehow persuade people the truth of the gospel. That if somehow we learn the latest technique, the latest strategy, presentation of the gospel in a particular way that people will come flooding to us to be saved. They are a rebellious people, stubborn and obstinate. And by your grace, it will be our lives acting out your love, the love of Christ, and your grace. People will learn of forgiveness as we forgive them. And then come to find that we forgive because we have been forgiven. We are not robots. We're not mindless bipeds. We are, in fact, to think about things. Ezekiel pushed back, and you allowed it. What a wonderful lesson! us to know that you want us to be engaged, totally engaged in what you've called us to do. I thank you for bringing us together today. I thank you for the rain. I pray for safety as each one travels home on the slick roads. We thank you for your love and your grace. May your spirit go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.